Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Professor Karen Morrissey on health inequalities and climate change. Thank you uh, for coming out this evening. So I'm going to speak about my research that in most ways they don't overlap, even though they should because we're only getting to the cusp of both of them. We're only getting to the cusp of understanding health inequalities. We're also only getting to the cusp of understanding the impact of climate change on um, health. And actually, we really need to up our game because when both of those collide, it's, it's not going to be a pretty picture, basically. So every single generation thinks that they are living in the most amazing time. Okay, that's that's a given. Um, Everybody thinks that their generation, that their world is one of unprecedented change. And actually, to be honest, everybody is right, because uh, change is the only constant that the earth has ever known. And I use the word earth rather than humanity, because basically we are all one. And for the most part, this change has been really good for health outcomes. If you look at this over time, this is just for uh, England and Wales. We went from, in the 1750s, from an average life expectancy of about 38, had a bit of a dip here, went all the way up to um, where we are now, and it's about 78 for men and about 81 for women. Now, I'm not, this is really, really impressive. 200 years in industrial (coughs) revolution, and we have gained half another life for ourselves. We've also gained in terms of our healthy life. So people are, unfortunately, we're not healthy um, up until the day we die. We often have a disability associated with them. And people as it stands are living to about 65, 75, what what we call disability-free life. So every aspect of our life is improving. Up until now, the big proviso, the big caveat here is if I'm sure some of you already know that life expectancy has actually stopped since austerity, but that's not well, in some ways, it's part of the talk. So, change, progression, whatever you want to call it, has been really good for our health, unless, of course, you live in Africa. It's been really good for you if you live in uh, Western Europe and Canada and Australia, not so great if you're from um, other places really good for you if you're from London as well. So this is up to date uh, data. Well, 2016, there's always a lag with data. So your life expectancy is about 10 years. um, There can be about 10 years difference between the really affluent part of London, Kingsington and Chelsea, and some parts of Glasgow. And also, you know, it's pretty good for you if you are in a higher managerial or professional occupation compared to routine Mm. occupations. So if you're a doctor, lawyer, academic, if you're in a managerial position, you will tend on average to live quite a few years more than somebody that's a plumber, that works in a shop, etc. So I'm going to start by my first question. I want you to, this is a global, so I'm asking globally, what was the primary cause of death 
globally in 2007. Do you think it was a cardiovascular disease, so of the heart, HIV, AIDS, cancer, malaria, or dementia? So 52% of you think it's cardiovascular disease, 41% think it's uh, malaria. We have a very low number of HIV, cancer and dementia. Okay, you're really right. It is cardiovascular disease. The second is... No, it's cancer. It's cancer. Can I just say that it's cardiovascular disease by a long shot. We call them non-communicable diseases. So it's cardiovascular disease by double for cancer and the third is respiratory diseases, so lungs and breathing. You can see that thankfully malaria is way down and as is HIV and AIDS. But as you can imagine, it is going to be quite globally patterned. So what is... This seems to show that heart disease, cardiovascular disease, is killing us. It's our main cause of death. But actually, I totally disagree. It's what goes down on the... Do you say coroner's report? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, death yeah. 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 your I've been watching too much um, CSI or something like that. <laughs> what goes down on your... Okay, heart disease, cardiac arrest, cancer, lung cancer. That's what goes down on the death certificate. But actually... In many of the cases, what the real cause has been is poverty. And poverty is insidious. It, it's there in the background and it's just working its way along. And it's a vicious cycle. It goes from generation to generation. Okay? And that's really difficult for us people that are working in the medical school because it doesn't, there's no technology out there as such. There's no drug that's going to cure poverty. Going from something like cardiovascular disease that we call non-communicable diseases all the way down to malaria, more infectious diseases, the underlying cause in a lot of these cases, particularly if you die young, is poverty. Actually, poverty is too big a word. Okay, it's a very what we call in well because people don't like being called impoverished. Um, we dress it up a little bit when we're speaking about health inequalities, and what we call them are the social determinants of health. And what we say is, and this has been proven time and time again, that to be a healthy person, there's a certain amount that's down to genetics. And of course, there's a certain amount that's down to behaviours. But broadly, what really helps a person to acquire good health, have a long-lasting life, have a long-lasting disability-free life, <coughs> is economic stability, good neighbourhood and built environment. And coming from the environment at the European Centre for Environment and Human Health, this is something I'm particularly interested in. Good access to health and health care. Social, our social and community context, we get a lot from people, as much as we might, may not want to think it. Our neighbours are really, really important to us. And our education, which of course is tied into uh, all of these. For me, education is one of the, the key aspects. And it's these, it's the economic <coughs> and social conditions that influence an individual and group differences in, in your health status. And all of these will go on to what I would call these are sort of the material um, aspects. They will go on to permeate your life in ways that you wouldn't expect. If, if you, does anybody here smoke? Okay. Sometimes, yeah. Why did you start smoking? 
was there anything well everybody was doing this yeah it was social by being around people that are doing a habit will make you do it so you think you grow out of peer pressure when you're when you're 16 or 17 or in some cases when you're 24 25 actually not the environment that we live in and when i speak about the environment here i'm not speaking about air pollution etc i'm speaking about the social context in which you live in is really really important if everybody in your area on your street in your peer group if everybody drinks to excess if everybody takes drugs you are more likely to do this just the normal habits of the place in which you live, the people that you're with. The kind of converse is true. If you live in an area which has very high unemployment, it's unlikely to impact on your social, on your well-being, because it's normalised. However, if you're a millionaire that suddenly lives, loses his, their job, um, your, your, that impact will probably be quite high. So even within these things, the mechanisms and the pathways are really, really interesting. So to me, it's not what kills us. It's not what's on the death cert. Fortunately, oh, I told you this wasn't a happy story, but uh, we all have to die. But the way in which we live, and these aspects can make our lives much better. And they're actually spatially patterned. So how does it play out across space? Let's look at... I, I'm not going to use the word poverty. I'm going to use the word deprivation. So this is what we call the index of multiple deprivation. I'll tell you how it's made up. But what it shows is some of the most deprived areas versus some of the least deprived areas. What you can do is compare one area to the next. As you can see, um, the tra after the trauma of having to actually cross the tamer, I came into the more, it would seem, less deprived exter. Cornwall has very, very high levels of deprivation. My beloved uh, Liverpool up here, also very, very high levels of deprivation. Here, parts of London, yes, but this whole area here, which is just, it seems to me, uh, I'm clearly not from here, but it just the commuting belt for greater London area has much, much lower levels of deprivation. And you can see the clear north-south divide. And I always, it kind of annoys me when people say the north-south, because actually it's really the southeast versus the rest. Like, we're not any different to up here, really. And how this is measured, better than poverty, what deprivation takes into account is the average, well actually the median income of an area, the employment opportunities within an area, the education, what the achievement of education, the highest level of achievement of education is, the health status, so health is actually built into this, the crime rate, the barriers to housing and services. When I first moved to Cornwall, people repeatedly told me that the reason Cornwall um, scored so low was actually because of the poor housing and the barriers to buying your own house. Um, I also don't think they went to some of the parts of Cornwall because there's a lot of these issues as well. And your actual living environments. And this, based on these seven um, areas, here is the map of deprivation. And I'm going to overlay this somewhat with a map of life expectancy. And what I hope is somewhat clear is that relationship between deprivation and life expectancy. And I'd like to say, usually, if I'm using, doing a, a paper, a piece of research, life expectancy is a very crude measure, but it's also um, 
it's also quite impactful. So you can see that the areas that are the least deprived are also some of the areas that have the highest levels of life expectancy. This is it just plotted. Between this is the least, this is the most deprived area, and this is the least deprived area. So, someplace in Bla or well, actually Blackpool, all the way over to Kensington and Chelsea, and you can see that there is a ten-year gap in life expectancy, depending just on where you live, and it's because of these social determinants of health and how they differ across space. Now, I want you. I know I've spent the last 20 minutes rabbiting on about um, health inequalities, but I actually do want to know what you think of when you think of climate change. Anything. This is free association. People come up. It should have a nice little word cloud. Running out of control. Oh, that's interesting. Weather. Extinction. Ah, polar. I think we... Donald Trump. Did you know that Greta is think, going to trademark her name? How, what do people think of that? Yeah, I don't know. I also learned when I went home to Ireland last that she's hated in Ireland. Yeah, they think that she should play with her friends. I, I don't know, I don't get it. Like, Irish people are quite pro climate change. I, I just didn't get it. Yeah. Pollution. Okay, I think it's really, really interesting that C is coming out. And I, I do wonder, is it more the, all the um, attention that plastic pollution is getting rather than climate change? And I just wish David Attenborough would do a proper show on climate change because what he did for plastic pollution in the course of six months, we've been trying since the 1970s for climate change. Um, but the sea is important. So, a build-up of CO2 in the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution, that great point where life expectancy really, really, really started to increase, has also, at the same time, increased CO2 and sea surface temperatures, which has increased and made more variable our temperatures. That means up and down. It's not global warming. It's a global variation, if anything. It's led to sea level rise, which in the UK and Ireland we should be quite concerned about. Ocean acidification, which if you like, if you just like your seas, you should be worried about, but it has a detrimental impact on our fish stocks. And also extreme weather, which in turn threatens a whole host of factors that are integral to our actual human health. We're, we're looking at, here we're looking at threats to our food, our food supply, and don't, one of the things that seems to, people romanticise about climate change <coughs> is that it's poor people in poor countries. This is actually going to be all of us. It's everybody in this room. There's going to be marine micro uh, blooms, increased vectors, vectors as in parasites. So we might actually start to see the things like malaria come into the UK because we suddenly have those conditions. Our drinking water will be threatened. And actually, this is the thing that actually, for me personally, scares me the most. I think we're going to have huge issues around water security. And even though we've fought so many wars over oil, I think there will be way more fought over water. Uh, population migration, which 
is a, it's very, very destabilizing. Remember, one of the social determinants of health was economic stability, just stability in, uh, in general. The mundane is actually good for us. We might not believe that, but it is. And a whole host of our infrastructure is going to be threatened. And to the point where the Lancet, this prestigious medical <laughs> journal that I hope some of you may be aware of, has said that the biggest global health threat of the 21st century is climate change. And if we want to maintain our health, we need to do something about it now. So the impacts of climate change on human health. A lot of these actually are the big talking points. We know that there's going to, the interaction with air pollution is going to really impact our respiratory system. We know that environmental degradation is going to cause forced migration and civil conflict and have mental health impacts. We know that um, extreme heat is going to be really, really just bad for our bodies in general. And just the various injuries and fatalities that are going to arise because of extreme weather. Climate change directly impacts on our health. It will have us coughing, sneezing, wearing masks, everything that you can imagine. However, they're what I would nearly call the direct impacts. It's the indirect impacts that are going to be more pervasive. Um, it's going to be the social and economic impacts, actually. It's not going to be the direct impacts. It's going to be our economic and social foundations that insidiously, per, um, pervasively works its way into our everyday health and well-being. It's going to be the loss of capacity for people to work. It's going to be social conflict because we're fighting over even less resources. It's going to be because of uh, water supply issues. It's going to be because of the price stuffs. Uh, the price of things is going to go through the roof. And if you go back, if you think about what I call the social determinants of health, what actually causes our health, our health outcomes, they all map onto these. Our employment, our fear of crime, our conflict, health, income, all of these impacts, these social and economic impacts, are directly going to feed into what our, uh, to our health status across the globe. And it's important to remember here in the UK, in Ireland as well. So what we are seeing now is... This is, I'm going back to the last slide where you have the map of life expectancy. And you can see that it's, I think it's quite stark. 10 years um, dying at 74 versus dying at 84 is quite <coughs> a big difference. And then when you take into account life expectancy as well. And why should a plumber die before somebody that's an academic? You know, um, you know it, it doesn't make sense. It is more impacted by our social and environmental and economic conditions. And what you're going to see with climate change, it isn't going to be the big outbreaks of malaria in Cornwall and Devon. It's not going to be just the loss of life because people um, are dying because of extreme cold or extreme health. It's going to be because of health inequalities and the fact that climate change is all is our whole economic environment is already so unstable for some people and so dis so proportionately advantageous and so disproportionately disadvantageous to others that this is going to be the real impact of climate change and pretty much I think that this map will remain the same except you're going to see life expectancy 
not just going down because of austerity, but going down because of actual climate change. And we're going to have these inequalities. And I don't think they're going to actually be parallel, as in <coughs> if you drop 10 years in one, you'll drop 10 years in the other. I think it'll be dispor disproportionately for um, those that are in the more deprived areas. So that, for me, is the impact of climate change. It's not the big news stories. It's the everyday lives of people that you see when you're, we're walking around. And it's going to be how their health is impacted in an, an environment that's a lot more hostile than what we're used to. I think I want to jump in and be like, so what's the solution? <laughs> How can we change, you know, are there any, what's the University of Exeter and what are academics doing to try and change that course? Or is there anything we can do? Like, what are the solutions? So I... I'll demonstrate my crisis to you <laughs> yeah. as an academic. I spend half of my time thinking, what's the point of being an academic when we're actually not doing anything? And a 17 and an 18 year old has a more powerful voice. Maybe that's what we should all do. We need to all take to the streets. However, all of us taking to the streets would disproportionately impact on the poor, the people we are supposed to be helping. And second, nothing will be done without evidence. And unfortunately, while there seems to be loads of evidence, but there is still a lot of uncertainty. So as academics, it is our job to bring the evidence to the table. As humans, as in the wider population, I actually do believe in micro changes. I really do believe in not filling your kettle to the full brink and turning down your temperature dial. I know they say, oh, it's so easy to say, but in China they're doing this, that and the other. But at some point, if we all do it, it will make an impact. Opening it up to you guys. Yeah, go for it. It's not a question, but at the beginning when you said how open to peer pressure we are, and if on our street everyone's mm -hmm. using drugs, we're very likely to do the same thing. Yeah. I just think that's hopeful in that bit when you were talking about micro-changes. Yeah. You know, you're kind of providing a model for change. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Trying to find something hopeful. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. But I also think because we end up living in bar environments that are... Um, that where everybody is so similar, we end up in an echo chamber and we, yeah. do, and we forget about everybody else. So, I mean, I was absolutely shocked that everybody in Ireland seemed to hate Greta. I was like, what's, what's wrong? You know, it, and it seemed to be universal. People that believed in climate change, you know, they just didn't think it was appropriate for a 16, 17-year-old girl to stand up and tell world leaders what to do which is very insightful about uh, the Irish psyche, actually. But I do think there is hope, but it means that we have to mingle more, and we're very bad at that. Everybody here came because you've so interest either in health or climate change. I would have been very... Is there anybody here that doesn't believe in climate change? But if we go outside and we walk into a pub, you know, there could be the um, same amount of people there that don't believe in it. So, and we're polarising ourselves. And that's part of the social conflict. And it is going to be a huge issue. It's the conflict over who's right, who's wrong. I, I hate to bring it up. Brexit, look what has, what's happened there. Yeah. So, yeah, at the front there. Uh, so do you think there's more of a role, or what do you think the role is for public health campaigners, public health England, 
clinicians or healthcare workers, what dialogue and tone should they be <coughs> suggesting? The interesting thing about um, the professionals is that doctors are still, medical doctors, not PhDs, medical doctors are still very well respected. They do tend to have the ear of the general public. And I um, said this tongue-in-cheek, the Lancet Countdown, because I'm one of the co-authors on it. One of the reasons I give so much time to it for free is because I think that actually it is going to be down the public health route that we try to get some traction. People understand life and death more than they do plastic pollution, even though that has raised the consciousness of so many people. And it is gaining traction with the clinicians. They are starting to see the pathways. And I don't know at this point, is it just token? Like if they're all jumping on the bandwagon, but there is some amount of traction there. So I think the health sector as a whole has a lot to do in this area. Yeah, um, I was an observation on your previous slide that we were looking at. Um, yes, about the economic, um, social and economic impacts. Um, I specialize in um, reproductive and sexual health. Mm -hmm. And a thing that I think is missing on this is women. Absolutely. Um, and what we have found in a lot of research are specialized in transactional sex. Mm -hmm. And you were seeing a lot of women who maybe worked in markets, for example, the change in the effect of the environment, whether fishing was reduced and their, their, whether it was farming or fishing, were resorting men, if they couldn't sell something in the market or earn a living that way, often would turn to um, transactional sex. Yeah. It's not just th that element that you see for women, but it's the girls are the first to stop being paid for to go to school. Absolutely. I could have done a whole presentation on just, on just women because they are going to be the most that are disproportionately mm -hmm. impacted for all the reasons you just outlined. And I, I think in, some, in many ways, even if we mitigate or adapt our way out of it, women are still going to be disproportionately impacted in some way or the other. It's just not a level playing ground. And to add gender onto the health inequalities aspect, you're <coughs> looking at such a stark picture. Yeah. I've got a question now, yeah. Do you think that the universities have got capacity to help those of us sort of on the ground um, sort of like local town and parish councils who are trying to do whatever we can locally to impact, you know, we've done our climate emergencies, we're trying to bring in climate action plans. Very often in a situation where your fellow councillors don't don't get it, as yeah. I would say, it's very frustrating. They're after um, a meal and but a certain need. <laughs> I, I think a lot of us, I'm trying to kind of network with the <laughs> Dorset councillors yeah. to try and, you know, those of us that are trying to push things to happen. Mm -hmm. So I think we kind of know what we want to do. What we don't know is the how, the bigger kind of connections. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know where to start. I don't know who to contact. I think it is an open door. And I think at the moment that's where the most change is possible because we'll take people out of the, the echo chambers I was speaking mm. about. And I will be very uh, brutally honest, a lot of our work now is based on metrics of what we call impact. And academics are just searching to work with people. So it may not be the most altruistic, but certainly take advantage of it. Yeah, yeah. You just have to remember that we're not the most socially 
people. You know how we do not like speaking to people. I want to meet my fellow counsellors. This is going to take me days to get over, basically. It's going to be cuddles on the couch with Polly. Just to add on that, um, the university, they have got a working group that solely focuses on public engagement. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be an event on July the 7th called Exchange which will be held at the RAM. Um, it's not publicly advertised yet. And that is a whole day where the University of Exeter <laughs> comes down and says, this is what we've been doing. What do you guys think? The University of Exeter, we've got a website coming up that's going to showcase public engagement. So there'll be a portal for everyone who's not part of the university. There'll be a website that you guys can go to and a contact and number, someone you can ring, because we really appreciate the university there are some awesome things going on, but it's really difficult to navigate. Yeah. Um, but if you come over at the end, and then we can exchange details and I can try and help. Can I just say as well, I'm not involved at the moment, but Exeter City Futures, if there's anybody yeah. here from there, they're doing a big community engagement piece, and there's a launch day on March the 26th, and that's going to be all about research into practical use yeah, across the whole of Ex across the whole of the community of Exeter. We also have the Global Systems Institute. Yeah. And there's yeah. we are trying to have a citizen engagement thing, but the true I mean something that is true is that we don't have enough resources in the university to have sustained engagement. Yeah. So one thing on that, and I really mean this, um, don't come to us and let us speak at you. You have to speak with us or else those echo chambers are never going to break down. And we won't realise that people really, really are really cold at 19 degrees, you know, because of the holes in the breathing houses in Cornwall. We won't get those nuances that you were speaking, that all of you have alluded to. So don't let us speak at you. You have to speak with us. But the university is really trying now. Yeah. And the Global Systems Institute, that whole, the new institute, it's, it's embedded on engagement to help. Like, I love doing engagement, but, like, I kind of need your voices to say, like, we need this. And so we're reaching out and, like, coming to this is supported by the university. You can email us directly and we can try and help. Mm -hmm. but yeah, but I'm afraid we've come to the end. Okay, great. <laughs> but that was an absolutely fantastic Thank talk. You. Thank you so much.